Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I'm the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Again, we find ourselves towards the end of Matthew's gospel. Here in chapter 27, we find our king on the cross of Calvary. We looked at the place of the cross, Golgotha. Verse 33, we looked at the pain on the cross, the crucifixion in verse 34 at the beginning and verse 35 at the beginning, the prophecy at the cross where Jesus has his garments divided in verse 35 and 36, the posting of the crime over the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, the crime, and now we look at the people who have gathered at the cross, the crowd, and their contempt in verses 38 through 44. And it is this cross that truly is the great dividing line among all human beings, among all men and women. You will either glory in the cross or you will have contempt for it, or be offended by it. You see, the cross reveals God's love, but it also reveals man's depravity. It's what brings in sharpest focus the circumstances of our mind and our heart and our spiritual condition. In this passage, we find three groups of people. The passing crowds in verse 39. The Jewish leaders in verse 41. Two criminals in verse 44. We discover that this is the source of the contempt. But we also see the substance of their disgust and contempt. They dispute Christ's claims. And so they mock him. So you can destroy the temple and build it up in three days, can you? In verse 40. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross at the end of verse 40. He saved others, but he can't save himself, verse 42. He trusted God. Let God show his approval by delivering him, unquote. That's in verse 43. This is a picture of just how wicked their contempt and disgust is for the cross. But we should pause at this point and remind ourselves of something absolutely important. The wicked disapprove of what God approves. The wicked approve 
of what God disapproves. And that should cause all of us to pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, do I approve what God approves? And do I disapprove what God disapproves? We begin between two criminals. Look again at verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right, the other on the left. The scriptures tell us that Jesus hung between two robbers or malefactors or criminals. Bruner calls them terrorists. Craig Keener says that Josephus used the same word to describe the revolutionaries who would take up arms against Rome. Presumably these are the colleagues of Barabbas. But we see in that single sentence another prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 12. Quote, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. The Jewish Messiah would be great. Yet the Jewish Messiah would somehow be identified with crime and criminals. In Isaiah 53, it says in verse 12, And he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. The idea being not just that his death is prophesied, but the reason is given. He's going to die for sin. And so the cross offends in part... Because of where it happened. Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary. The cross offends in part because of who was with him when he died. Robbers. The cross offends most of all because of what it reveals about the human condition. The human circumstances. Clearly, Jesus is going to die on a cross to fulfill prophecy. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29. So again, the prophecy reveals the sacrificial nature of his death and what it's going to accomplish now, for those of you who have been following along in Matthew's gospel, and you can remember a few chapters back, you'll remember that James and John came to Jesus at the behest of their mother and said, we want to be with you. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said? You, don't, you have no idea what you're asking. Yes, we do. Are you willing to do what I'm going to do? Yes, we are. Those who want to be close to Jesus rarely want to be close to him in his suffering, in his humiliation, in the ridicule, in the contempt. They want to identify Jesus in his glory, in his resurrection power, in his eternal 
reality. And this is what the Bible promises, that you need one and the other. The Bible doesn't divorce one from the other. Jesus reminds us that if you love me, you're willing to suffer with me and walk with me and go in the direction that I've called you to go. The men with Jesus were executed for crimes against the Roman government. Jesus is being executed for crimes against God's government. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, Paul writes, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In the previous chapter, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When crime is committed, justice has to be served. But we rarely consider crimes against God. John Piper writes, quote, If God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die, unquote. But God is just. He's holy and just and loving. So look what it says. We leave the thieves and he's blasphemed by the crowd in verse 39. And it says, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. The crowds can't contain their contempt. It's palpable. The mocking. What does that mean? And those who pass by blasphemed him. The word is a transliteration of a word that literally means to speak harm, to speak harmful. The word in its biblical context suggests an attitude of disrespect that's directed towards God. Now, I want you to think about that because that's what blasphemy is. It's disrespect that's directed towards God. I think it's safe to say that we could even go a little bit further. It's an attitude of disrespect or an act of disrespect that's directed towards the character of God or that's directed towards the will of God or the plan of God, or the Son of God. In other words, it's that moment where you decide that what God says about himself or about his Son, that you disagree, that you can't buy that, that you won't embrace that. And so those who pass by pause only long enough to taunt Jesus and jeer Jesus and mock Jesus. Matthew's going to use the exact same language that's contained in Psalm chapter 22, verses 7 and 8, where David, under the power of the Holy Spirit, hundreds of years before the crucifixion of his future famous son, says, quote, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. 
They shake the head. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's as if David, under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, peers into the future, sees his son on that cross and the and the disgust and the contempt and the ridicule. And note what the crowds are inviting him to do. Leave the cross. If Jesus has the power to destroy the temple and build it in three days, he has the power to save himself and leave the cross. Those who mock and scorn Jesus will often misquote him. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We know that he was talking about the temple of his body. He was saying, destroy this body and I will bring it back to life. And what is ironic is that at the moment that this is happening, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. His body was being destroyed, but in three days, it's going to come back to life. It's going to rise again. In the minds of the wicked, the true proof of Christ's divine identity is in his display of power in leaving the cross. Not staying on the cross. It was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who said, quote, They claimed they would have believed if he had come down. We believe because he stayed up, unquote. And that's exactly right. They said they would believe if he would come down from the cross. The Bible says that Jesus came down from heaven. If the second person of the Trinity, if God incarnate, can leave heaven and come to the earth and supernaturally intrude himself in the affairs of humanity, surely he can avoid the pain and avoid the suffering. Does all of this sound familiar? It should, because this is Satan's suggestion. If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread, Matthew 4, 3. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. What, what, what exactly is Satan suggesting? Satan is suggesting you're hungry. Feed yourself. You're the son of God. Prove to everyone that you're the son of God. Have an outrageous display of power that will be so compelling that everyone will have to believe. But Jesus is going to obey his father. Jesus is going to obey God's will. And this is the shocking thing. That it's God's will. That Jesus should die on the cross for your sin. Satan attempts to persuade Jesus to abandon God's will. Forsake Calvary's cross. Over and over again I've tried to remind you. That Satan's plan and Satan's desire is to make you ignorant of God's will. To make you impatient with God's will. To get you to act 
independent of God's will. It's okay for you to ask the question, what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? Whatever else we know about God's will, we know this, that it's God's will for your life. That you turn from your sin and that you trust Jesus as your Savior. Look, he's berated by the chief priests. Again in verse 41, likewise the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders. Verse 42, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Note that. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. I want you to see the sarcasm and and the vitriol. For he said, I'm the son of God. Remember what they're thinking in their mind. He blasphemously called himself the son of God. He blasphemously identifies himself with God's Messiah, with Christ, with the one who was prophesied, the one who would come from heaven, the one who would come to the earth. They don't believe that and that God couldn't possibly save him. Because of what he said and what he's done. In verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him. The word revile means mock, make fun of. You would have to wonder how in the world could two people who are crucified next to him, who are suffering enormous pain, generate enough sarcasm and wickedness to mock Jesus in their painful circumstance. But it's easy when you think about your own life and your own family and your own acquaintances. Don't you know people who are hurt and who are suffering, who are empty and bitter, and they still find the strength to mock God and blaspheme Jesus? The religious leaders now admit that Jesus saved others. Before they denied it. This is almost certainly a reference to his healing ministry and miracles. Remember, they couldn't deny (coughs) that real people were helped by Jesus. Real people who were really blind saw and people who were really sick were healed and people who were really dead came back to life. But the explanation that they offer is that Jesus did this according to demonic power. The religious leaders invite Jesus to save himself, leave the cross, and look what they say, and we will believe him. But it's not true. The Lord refuses to abandon his mission. Jesus is going to save people on the Father's terms. Jesus is going to save them not on the terms of the unbeliever and not on the terms of the make-believer. Twice the religious leaders chided Jesus, begged Jesus, sarcastically asked Jesus for a sign in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. 
If you're the Lord, if you're the Messiah, give us a sign, show us a sign. Twice before, Jesus refuses to give them a sign. He says that no sign will be given you except the sign that was given by Jonah, the prophet. And he's about to reveal that sign. Jesus is going to die on this cross. He's going to come back to life. So what exactly are the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders... What exactly are they mocking? What exactly are they scoffing? What exactly are they ridiculing? Know what the text says. They claim that Jesus, they're mocking the claim that Jesus is the king of Israel. In their mind, not true. The claim that Jesus is the son of God. In their mind, that's not true. The claim that Jesus can save. In their mind, that's not true. And it provides the foundation of all of the contempt, all of the wickedness, and all of the sarcasm that's directed towards God and towards Jesus. The chief priests, the religious leaders, they mock his claim to be a king. What could be more absurd? A king on a cross? They mock his claim to be the son of God. And again, this is the language of the determined unbeliever. He can't be the son of God. And then they say, come down from the cross. Why? Show me what I want to believe. Show me what I want to see. Do you understand what's happening with the crowds come down from the cross? Do you understand what's happening with the religious leaders come down from the cross? Do you understand what's happening even with the criminals on his left and on his right? We're hurt. We're in trouble. If you can, come down from the cross and while you're at it, bring us down as well. Why do the crowds have so much contempt for the cross? And for Christ, why do the religious leaders despise it so much? Why does Satan have so much contempt for the cross? This last week, I don't know if you had the opportunity to watch Billy Graham's funeral. I don't normally take time out on Friday mornings, but I was compelled to take time out of my study and watch his funeral. Years ago, Billy Graham preached, quote, in the cross of Christ, I see three things. First, a description of the depth of man's sin. Second, the overwhelming love of God. Third, the only way to salvation, unquote. This is exactly why the cross is so offensive. Because, like Billy said, it's a description of the depth of man's sin. It's an admission of sin. The moment that you look at it and you understand it and you realize what it is, you begin to understand something about yourself. It's an admission of guilt before a holy God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, The cross is God's truth about us, and therefore it's the only power which can make us truthful, unquote. When we know the cross, 
We're no longer afraid of the truth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. Emil Bruner sums it up almost exactly the same way. He says, quote, in the cross of Christ, God says to man, that's where you ought to be. Jesus, my son, hangs there in your stead. His tragedy is the tragedy of your life. You are the rebel. You should have been hanged on the gallows. But lo, I suffer instead of you, because of you, because I love you in spite of what you are. My love for you is so great that I meet you there, there on the cross. I cannot meet you anywhere else. You must meet me there by identifying yourself with the one on the cross. It is by this identification that I, God, can meet you in him, saying to you as I say to him, my beloved son, unquote. And this is exactly, this is exactly why the religious leaders feel compelled to mock Christ, ridicule Christ, blaspheme Christ, ridicule him, ridicule him on that cross because they want to meet God somewhere else. Anywhere else. They want to meet God in their mind. They want to meet God in their emotion. They want to meet God in their religion. They want to meet God in a quiet forest. They want to meet God on the golf course. They want to meet God at the homeless center, doing good works of charity or offering money to the children's hospital. And don't get me wrong, I'm not for a moment suggesting that, is it wrong to do what's right? Of course not. But if you think that you can meet God by being a good person, when the cross says otherwise, it says that there's something wrong. They want to meet God somewhere else. They want to meet God through someone else for any other reason. And so the cross remains offensive. The cross offends all man-made religion. The cross offends the human mind and the human emotion. The cross affirms God's holiness and man's sin. The cross affirms that God is just. And that God's love isn't divided or detached from God's justice. And so because the mind is offended and the heart is offended, because there are people who say, I want God to forgive me without a cross. And I want God to forgive my sin and, and make it go away so that I don't have to trust Jesus and I don't have to believe in Jesus. And this is why it remains offensive. The cross offends every human being who still believes that sin doesn't matter. I want you to think about who that would include. It would include every single person who doesn't really believe there is such a thing as sin. You see, there are people who believe in evil 
But remember, the moment that they say, I believe in evil, what they're talking about is a transgression against each other. But the moment that they admit that there's such a thing as sin, then it's rebellion against God. That's blasphemy against God. The cross offends everyone who desperately wants to believe that God has to find a way to save me apart from the cross. You know, some have accused God of cosmic child abuse. Some have accused Christians of holding on to a symbol of torture and pain that defies and offends common decency. In 1958, 60 years ago, Billy Graham wrote, and I quote, this expression, the offense of the cross, sounds strange to our modern ears. Because you see, we have a beautiful cross on our church. We have crosses on the lapels of our coats. We have crosses around our necks. We have crosses embossed on Bibles. We never think of it as a scandal, as an offense. And yet the Bible says it is a stumbling block. It is an offense. It's a scandal among men. It's a base and despised thing. The cross was a place to execute criminals. Don't you miss his voice? When he would say, It was a place where the vilest died. And when I see Christ hanging on the cross, I say with Isaiah, There's no beauty that I should desire him. Paul says that in his day, it was an offense. 60 years ago, it was an offense. 100 years ago, an offense. 500 years ago, an offense. 2,000 years ago, it was an offense. But what they reject, we praise. Albert Midland says, quote, Himself he could not save. He on the cross must die. Oh, mercy cannot come to ruined sinners nigh. Yes, Christ the Son must bleed. The sinners, that sinners might be from sin freed. The crowds want a Christ, Christ crossless Christianity. The religious leaders want a crossless Christianity. Even the wicked and the condemned want a crossless Christianity. That's why it can say in verse 44, the thieves reviled him with the same thing. John MacArthur writes, quote, Jesus was not their kind of Messiah. They had no desire to follow him in the way he demanded. They didn't want to be made righteous, but successful. They didn't want to be cleansed, but selfishly satisfied, unquote. What is it that you want from him? What is it that you need from him? 
What is it that you desire from him? What kind of Jesus are you willing to accept, embrace, believe? Many years ago, two prominent educators made totally contradictory statements. One was the president of Harvard University. The other was a graduate of Yale University and the president of Biola. That's the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. His name was R.A. Torrey. Torrey said, quote, Preach any Christ but a crucified Christ. And you will not draw men for long, unquote. At the same time, the Harvard president, Charles Eliot, in a lecture entitled, quote, The Future of Religion, said that while he was okay for the ancient man to believe in a divine atoning Christ, modern man had so outgrown that idea. He said, quote, Let no man fear that reverence and love for Jesus will diminish as time goes on. The pathos and heroism of his life and death will be vastly heightened when he is relieved of all supernatural attributes and powers, unquote. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. It's blasphemy to say that what God says about Jesus is not true. It is blasphemy to say that what the Bible says about Jesus is not true. It is blasphemy to say that what Jesus says about himself is not true. The president of Harvard invited his hearers to love Jesus as a good man, a great man, maybe even the greatest man. But he isn't God in the flesh. He suggested that we have to strip Jesus of all of his supernatural powers, of all of his godlike characteristics. And if Jesus isn't God, then his death was simply a tragedy of a life that was cut painfully short. Why won't people accept the cross? Because Jesus Christ dying on that cross means that we're sinners. And it offends human sensibility. We have to admit that we need a savior. And we live in a world that wants to not make that admission. The religious leaders at the cross will not make that admission. The crowds that have gathered refuse to make that admission. Even the thieves at this point make that admission, but thankfully, prayer, praise God, one is going to change his mind, and we're gonna talk about that later. Not today. Paul, writing about this very important subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, wrote, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul knew that the cross offended the mind and the intellect. To those who say, that's not what I want and that's not what I need. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. That's what Paul believed about the cross. Paul uses this word glory in Galatians 6.14 when he says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word glory is a word that comes from a word that means to boast. It's to take pride in or to take pleasure in. Again, in the superficial sense, unless, of course, you're a parent or a grandparent, we boast in our children and our grandchildren. You might boast because you have a a world-class athlete in your family. You might boast because you knew Billy Graham personally. I never met him, but I did get to see him. I can boast that some of his family... I can realistically call friends. Paul could boast that he was a Jew and Paul could boast that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and he could boast that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He could boast that he was raised at the feet of Hillel. He could boast that he knew the original biblical languages. He could boast that he wrote one third of the New Testament, but that's not what he boasts in. He boasts in the one thing that makes his sin go away and that demonstrates the love of God and reconciles him with the Father. That's what Paul believed about the cross. What is it that you believe? What do you believe actually happened at this moment On that cross. John Owen wrote, quote, There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Isaac Watts, with such profundity and poetry, he writes, quote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt upon my pride. The crowds are pouring contempt on Christ and the cross. The religious leaders are pouring contempt on the cross and Christ. At this point, even the thieves are pouring contempt on Christ and the cross. But there's an antidote. You can pour contempt on any belief that you can be saved apart from the love of God and apart from the grace of God and apart from the sacrifice of Jesus and apart from the death of Jesus. Because the moment that you believe that you can be saved apart from the cross 
is the moment that you pour contempt on Christ and you exalt and elevate your pride. It makes perfect sense that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But what about you? What about you? Do you glory in the cross? Does it still rub you the wrong way? Spurgeon, like only Spurgeon could, said, quote, Ha! Poor sinner! What do you say? Are you offended with the cross? No, you're not. For it is there that you wish to lose your sins. Do you desire this moment to come to Christ? You say, I have no offense against Christ. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I would come even to his seat. Well, if you want Christ, Christ wants you. If you desire Christ, Christ desires you. Yes, more. If you have one spark of desire after Christ, Christ has a whole burning mountain of desire for you. He loves you more than you could ever love him. Rest assured that destitute, weary, lost, helpless, ruined, chief of sinners, come. He says, come then. He says, put your trust in the blood and the perfect righteousness and you'll find yourself rejoicing in Christ, set free from sin, delivered from iniquity, rendered safe, though not as happy as the very angels that now sing high hosannas upon the throne of the Most High. It was his way of saying, when you come to Christ, even the angels in heaven rejoice. You find yourself happy that you've been freed and cleansed. He dares say the angels are happier that you've been set free. How powerful. We're going to have communion in just a moment. I'm going to have Carolyn come up. I want to close with this. I counted dollars while God counted crosses. I counted gains while he counted losses. I counted worth by the things gained in store. But he sized me up by the scars that I bore. I coveted honors and sought for degrees. He wept as he counted the hours on my knees. And I never knew till one day at a grave how vain these things that we spend life to save. One day, you'll be more disgusted and offended and distressed because of your pride than over what God has done for you. And you'll realize what Billy Graham, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, with Isaac Watts, 
with John Bunyan, with so many others, discovered that the cross is a revelation of just how bad you are. That the cross is a revelation of just how loved you are. And that the cross is the remediation of the sin that you have and the salvation that you can experience if you'll simply trust him. We're going to have communion now. And again, for those of you who know and love Jesus, have this be a time of prayer and reflection. Have this be a time of remembrance and consummation. Have this be a time of not just realization, but dedication. That when you open this cup and you partake of its elements, that you are, once again, renewing your covenant. Renewing your vow. Renewing your commitment to the Lordship and the saviorship of Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, even as we have communion at this moment, Lord, Lord, we're, we're recalled what Jesus said in the last chapter when he gave thanks and he prays and he, he took the cup and he said, take this cup and drink it, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which would be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And again, that he gave thanks and praise and he broke the bread and he said, take it and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken for you. And do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we remember. We remember. We remember what Jesus has done. We remember what Jesus has accomplished. Lord, once again, by taking these communion elements, Lord, we want to pour contempt on our pride. Lord, we want to renounce that there's anything in us that's worthy of salvation. That the only thing that makes sense is the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we know that our sin put him there, but it was his love that kept him there. And so, Lord, we celebrate his sacrifice, his love, and our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go ahead and partake.